Welcome everyone, this is the 100th episode, Woo! triple digits of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm here with my associate producer, Alina Hodges, and so we're just going to talk about what's going on and some of our favorite moments from the past 99 episodes. This yeah. is also, uh, this is sort of Katie's send-off. Oh my god. As uh, many of our listeners know, I think, Katie is going to be going to Naropa, it, which is a grad school in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask them all about that program and what they're going to be doing for the next while. Cool. Away from away from us. Away from you. Um, away from me. There will be no tears today. No tears. No. No tears. On the- There's no crying in podcasting. Fuck that. <laughs> Hate that shit. So yeah, so I'm going. I, I think some of some of y'all have heard the story, but uh, so earlier this year I did a show called Thirty Nine Steps, and I played one of the clowns, and it was a really pivotal production in terms of my growth as a human and as an artist. And so, episode guest Eddie DeHayes came up to teach a clowning workshop in late February. And it was just such an amazing workshop. I was kind of kicking myself for not applying to any grad schools this year. Last year, I did URDAs. I got really close to some MFA and acting programs, uh, but didn't get into any of the programs that I was really passionate about. And so I was uh, messaging Eddie on Facebook Messenger, talking about kicking myself for not applying, and she recommended Naropa, and Naropa had been recommended to me a few times just because they have a similar philosophy to my undergraduate program, which was uh, Luther College's theater and dance department, which had a focus on devised work as well as scripted work, and so I was like, great, I'll look it up, I'll apply for it next year, and I found out that there were still nine days left to get the application in, (laughs) and so I was like, all right, if anyone can put together an application for grad school in nine days, that's me. So I immediately reached out to the people who had to write letters of reference, and I got in everything under the wire, and I had the interview for the program uh, on the set of 39 Steps. Would be on the Center for the Arts was really gracious and let me use the entire fucking stage. So I had I was sitting in this very awesome professor's chair and I had my leather my not my leather my red velvet smoking jacket on for good (laughs) luck and I spoke to Jeffrey Schickel who's the new head of that department and it was fantastic and then I got an email in April saying that I was on the wait list but that they couldn't tell me where I was on the wait list and I could hear as late as July that I was off the wait list. But if I didn't get off the wait list, then my application would be deferred for a year. And so I was like, great, this isn't like, maybe next, better luck next year sort of thing. And then early June, I found out that I got off the wait list and I was like, wait, what? And I was just about to go into Tech Week for the flick and so I, very quickly scheduled a flight and my fantastic uh, assistant director, Gabe Harshman, stepped up and took over running a few rehearsals so that I could go down to Boulder and back very quickly. And yeah. And so the program is uh, an MFA in contemporary performance. It's an interdisciplinary program. And so there will be movement and voice and acting and directing and writing and um, yeah, I'll just take over the world and stuff, basically. 
What is it that attracted you to a program in devised theater? What, why, why that direction with theater when you had applied to acting schools before? Right. I think what really, what really attracts me about this program is it, it, um, focuses on connecting because it's a Buddhist, a Buddhist inspired school overall. It's a pretty intimate school. Graduate and undergraduate combined is less than a thousand. So even, it's a third of the size, both schools put together, graduate and undergraduate, is a third of the size of my undergraduate school. So it's very intimate, and I think that was, that was attractive to me, and also the focus on connecting to the authentic self, uh, as woo-woo as that may sound, because I think that's a really important part of building yourself as an artist is feeling really connected to who you are as a human being and being a decent human being who's self-aware, who can uh, write and talk and think critically about whatever work that they're, um, you know, working on or, or viewing or all of that. And so I think, um, I think that's what really attracted me. The fact that it was interdisciplinary, that we would be generating new work there's 12 of us in the class. Six of them are international students, and they bring in a lot of international guest teaching artists as well. And so I'm very excited to get those different perspectives. And honestly, I one of the things that I'm picking up on doing, you know, doing the interviews, all the interviews that we've done, uh, is that devised theater, I wouldn't say that we're, I mean, we're not going to completely ever get rid of the scripted you know, the scripted play, but not I think... Not getting rid of Shakespeare, that's for damn sure. Not for, for <laughs> you, Shakespeare will go on forever. Because, because yes, yes, we'll always have Shakespeare. And after talking, um, y'all are in for quite a treat when we post uh, Meme Garcia's episode. Uh, she's going to uh, Lambda on a Fulbright, and her whole thing about talking, talking about reclaiming Shakespeare because Shakespeare's not, you know... Shakespeare's not really meant for her, you know, she's not, or she's felt that in her life as an act, as an actor, and the fact that she's just come off this amazing run, uh, as Ophelia in, in Wooden O's run of it this summer, and so I'm, I'm coming to warm up to Shakespeare a little bit more, we'll see, we'll see, I know my, uh, my roommate-to-be, Ashley, uh, and I were talking about, we were actually talking about Julius Caesar, because she saw an all-female, I don't know if it was an all-female production or several key roles were played by women, and she had gone out for Mark Antony, and uh, so we were having this conversation. She's like, well, when I get out of grad school, then I'll, like, go back and I'll be Mark Antony. And I'm like, what about in grad school? Because that's one of the, one of the other things that's really attractive about the program is it's really student-driven. So if we want to go through and be like, hey, like, we want to do complete works of Shakespeare abridged, but we want to do our own thing where, like, we're playing all the awesome guy roles. Like, we can do that. And that's, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, graduate programs are, uh, are very siloed. And so you're just doing acting, you're just doing one thing. And I think it attracts a special kind of artist who wants to kind of put their finger in all the different pots and, mm-hmm. and, kind of come out the other side seeing having a better sense of direction as an artist and a better sense of identity as both a human and as an artist that was a long and rambling answer to your question well but I think um something that really stands out to me for you is that is that sense of self and authentic self and discovering who you are as an artist and I've known you for almost 
We've known each other nine years. Nine years, yeah. Yeah. So, and not well. I mean, peripherally a little. I've been gone a lot of that time. Right, right. And it's really been in the past year that we've built a relationship closer. But, yeah. But, but in that last year, you've gone through quite a bit of um, kind of self-discovery and reclaiming your true sense of self. Absolutely. um, Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that in this program? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh... So, yeah, this year has been, and and this sort of segues into some of my favorite moments over the past, uh, over the past year and a half with interviews, and I think that uh, episode 67 with Nell Tankus and really understanding what genderqueer meant, and, and that, okay, here's, here's someone that I know that uses they, their, them pronouns, and that sort of planted the seed for me, like, is that... I think I knew sitting down uh, with that interview in that interview with Nell that part of the reason I really wanted them to be on the podcast was that I I just wanted to get in that brain and 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 know more because you don't I think I mean for me growing up in the Midwest like we weren't even able to call the gay straight alliance the gay straight alliance in my high school we call it tolerance group but like that's what it was it was the gay straight alliance and I think depending on where you grew up and what information that you have that really I mean that gives you the parameters in which you can build or kind of squelch your identity and so sitting down with Nell and and having that interview was really it was transformative for me that was really important and so I think that sort of, uh, if it didn't plant a seed, it was helped to germinate seeds about uh, gender identity and expression that um, that were going on with me that I was um, that I was you know digging into as as a human being. And then, two thousand sixteen has been this year where I've only I've only played male roles, and that has been fantastic. And it's sort of opened up how I view theater and how I view auditioning and I feel completely I feel completely okay seeing an audition notice now and saying hey there's a male part I want to audition for I'm going to shoot the director an email and a lot of directors say yes and some directors say no and I'm not really auditioning right now uh (laughs) but it's opened up it's made me seem you know it's made me claim my identity in a more meaningful way and being able to share that with with other people is is scary and vulnerable and there were times that I wish that I hadn't been as public about it as I was but then there are people who reach out to me and say uh you know my kid is trans and and reading reading what you're sharing about the importance of pronouns or your writing has really helped me deepen my relationship with them, made me go to their classroom and talk to their teacher and talk about the importance of pronouns and, and really, I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's, it's helped other, I think sometimes when you're vulnerable in that public way, it is scary, but you never know the impact that it can have on helping others expand their view of the world. And so, um, yeah, I think going into grad school, I'm really interested in exploring how we can, as a theater community, we can be better about um, being more inclusive and welcoming to gender nonconforming performers because 
the audition room is a very gendered place. And so how do we open that up? I know that when we went to audition for a show at Annex, that was the first time I saw an audition form that asked, even asked what one's gender pronouns were. And so I think we're making incremental steps towards having more progress in that area. But I really like, I want to create a field guide. Like I want to go out of, I want to leave grad school and have the manuscript of something that I could, you know, that can be a resource for casting directors and artistic directors because I'm really interested going, you know, if I go to the Beckett Foundation or if I go to Samuel French and I say, how does, how do casting restrictions work around gender nonconforming actors? Because I know that there are some folks like Mamet or I think, I'm maybe not Stafford, but definitely, yeah, maybe Beckett as well, where there's no gender bending. And in that case, they consider that a male tradition, uh, you know, a role that's traditionally played by a man oh, this company wants to change it so that the office manager is now a woman. That's not okay. With some, with some playwrights, they have, you know, they're that restrictive on it. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean for gender fluid or gender queer performers? Does that mean that they can't audition for that role? Like, who gets to decide who's masculine or feminine enough for a part? And how do we reframe... How do we reframe casting? I know it's a national conversation that's about... Diver you know, that we're having about diversity, about color-conscious casting, but then also extending that same thoughtfulness and inclusiveness to um, performers and gender as well. Again, another... There's going to be a lot of rambling answers, folks. You're used to it. That's why, that's why you keep coming back to this podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I love that that was, that was a great segue into... Um, favorite moments. So yeah, episode sixty-seven with Nell. Nell. Um, what's what's another? Another. Moment? Well, I have to get. I mean, I have to give a shout out to Sheila Wendorf for being the first one, because it didn't even exist, and I was like, "Hey, I'm coming over to your house. We're gonna and we're sitting cross-legged on her bed, and like, let's talk about some stuff." And why did you Why did you decide to do that? Have I, I don't know if you've really talked about what. Why? I think I, may, I think I may have told the this story before, but I'm, I'm happy to tell it again. You've I was, told me the story before, but I'm I don't not know sure. if it's been on air. Yeah. So there is, uh, I, I, for the past couple of years, I've written for Whidbey Life magazine, and I was asked to do a profile on a director who will remain nameless, and I love him very much, but he's very verbose. And so I was like, there's no way that I'm going to keep up typing the notes for this interview. And so. I'll just hit record on my iPhone and the voice memo thing and then listening back to you know type up quotations and all of that I was like hey this is like almost if he didn't keep saying this is off the record like every other sentence like this would almost be a podcast and then I've, I don't have you ever done like the strength finders survey there's like this mm -hmm. thing have you or, I don't know if I've done that one, but... But, like, there's a... So there's, like, this book that's called Strength Finders, uh -huh. and so you take this online survey, and then it gives you, like, five top words, uh -huh. and one of mine is definitely uh, activator. So uh, I'm not a person who's like, oh, it would be cool to do a podcast and, like, lets that idea go by. Like, I will barrel down on that idea until, you know, it fails miserably or works spectacularly, and so... I was just like, what would I need to do to do a podcast? Because a few 
a few years earlier, I had done a short-lived web series called Seahorse versus Lobster, which is very in the style of like Christopher Guest, where it would be improvised. And I just kind of taught myself iMovie and taught myself um, shooting and editing. And so I had some familiarity with editing stuff. And I was like, oh, in the way that my mind worked, I'm like, this is even easier than editing video because I just have to worry about sound and like not a picture. So this should be cool. And so I just uh, jumped in and I sort of, I came up with a short list and then Sheila was the first one I sat down with. But yeah, that those first few people, like before it was a thing, like they, I think they took a leap of faith uh, in sitting down to chat with me. And so grateful, grateful that they did. So yeah, it's Sheila, Sheila's episode is on my list. Uh, what other favorite moments? Oh, sitting down with um, Anish chef who's now in New York and earlier this year was in the premiere of uh, Southern Comfort at the public. She's just such a bright star and also someone who's really doing advocacy and also helping uh, kind of jumpstart the national conversation about what it means to be a trans actor and sitting down to be able to talk with her about her studies and uh, her studies and where she's going next and how she approaches building characters that definitely stands out as a favorite moment. Should I keep going down my list? Yeah, yeah, I think so. What else? I have, uh... oh, okay, so talking to Erin Pike and Hatlow about That's What She Said, that was before all the drama with Sam French and, like, them having to redact uh, some of the, uh, a good deal of the text and yeah, having... can you give us a little reminder of just kind of right. a brief synopsis of what that whole, what so, that show was and right. then what the fallout so was? So our g- good friend of the podcast, Courtney Meeker, who's also, all these awesome people are fleet not fleeing from Seattle, but leaving Seattle to go do juicy, <laughs> juicy graduate or other things. Um, so Courtney is, of course, uh, now moved to Iowa. She'll be in the playwriting program at University of Iowa starting this year. And so she had worked, <clears throat> uh, she had worked on on culling the text from the most produced plays. Uh, I think Theater Communications Group releases a study each year saying what were the, I think it's the top ten straight plays and musicals that were produced in that year, and obviously there's some carryover from year to year if a plays. I mean, obviously a lot of these are either Pulitzer Prize winning or the Tony Award winning shows that year. And what she did is she took the uh, text of the female uh, characters, like just basically started out with a big data dump, which was all the female text of all the female characters, both the text and the stage directions of those characters. And then she uh, curated them in a way that became a, I think it was between an hour and 90 minute one woman show for Aaron Pike. And then Hatlow came in and directed it. And so I think they had done a more, uh, a smaller run of it with, I believe it was on at on the boards as part of their New Works Festival. And so this was a one weekend run. It was at um, the Gay City Auditorium. And so everyone was stoked for it. And then after the first, I think it was after the first night of performances that got a cease and desist order and voicemail from someone at Sam French, who had heard about the fact that one of the plays was in there. And uh, so with very short notice, they had to go in 
and cut out all the sound cues and text from that play specifically. And so when Erin was up there, she would, you would have uh, the her on stage cueer. Uh, that sounds like that's not that was not Sam's title, but uh, every time there was a, there was a stage direction or a piece of dialogue from the specific play, Erin um, would cover her mouth and either Hatlow from the booth or Sam who was on stage would say redacted, and then with the sound cues that were built in. God bless Daniel Christensen up in the booth. They they didn't have time to cut those out. And so he was live, like, you know, bringing that slider down to make sure that they would not hear the stage, the audience would not hear the stage direction from the text. And, and then to start out that production, they started by playing the voicemail from the guy, Sam French, which included his phone number, which I loved. I thought that that was just such a beautiful way to start it. But then... I think in a weird way, it's one of the best things that could have happened for this little production in Seattle because then it became part of the national theater conversation. It became a conversation about fair use. Was this work, was there, en- was there enough transformation that had happened to this work that it became a new thing? And I know just, you know, kind of keeping up with Erin on Facebook and whatnot, you know... I think she was talking about a high school senior had worked on, that's what she said, for a senior project. Or there was a graduate school. Or when when I, when I had my graduate, my grad school interview, head of the department, he already knew about that's what she said. He had been reading the, you know, the articles and blogs and stuff of that nature. Um, and so, yeah, so that, it was really, it was, it was, it was an interesting time capsule because it was, the opportunity to talk to both Aaron and Hatlow before any of that happened. You know, they were just still in the rehearsal process. They hadn't put up this run of it anymore. And it's gotten, I mean, it's definitely been inspirational to me. There's part of me that wants to sort of do the same process of calling text, but do it for the plays that made the top of the annual Kilroy list, which if folks don't know about the Kilroys, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, but if you don't, um, the Kilroy's is a is an annual list that goes out of of highly suggested works, new works that have only had one at most one production, and it's you know they reach out to I think over a hundred literary managers, artistic directors, and they everyone makes recommendations, and then the, I believe the top fifteen or twenty um, are listed on their website, but then also they run through the honorable mentions and all of that. And um, it was sort of in response to uh, an event that happened at Washington, D.C. a few years ago where a very ill-informed <laughs> white cisgendered male artistic director was saying, well, I would produce more plays by women, but I can't find them. And someone, I forget who it was, was live tweeting in the back row. And, you know, it just got picked up. And so then people were tweeting at this, you know, in response to this, like, oh, yeah, I got binder, you know, Mitt Romney's famous comment, binders full of women. We have binders full of plays over here. It's just like, you know, and so I think part of the reason that the Kilroy's came into existence is to sort of, to sort of bridge that gap. So if you come across someone who's like, I can't find plays written by trans or women art writers. Oh, hey, here's a whole here's a whole fucking list, genius. Like, here is the list. And so that was 
uh, I'd be interested to read read some of those plays and, and do a similar exercise to That's What She Said. Um, and maybe even do them as partner pieces to see, like, what are the, what are the, what are the differences between the most produced plays and plays that folks think should be produced, but haven't necessarily been yet. Uh, what else do we have here? We have, uh, oh, the live episode that we did at 12th Avenue Arts, episode 80, um, with Julia Griffin and Lacey Gavilanis and, uh, Amy Poisson and... I'm missing someone, aren't I? Julia? Vanessa, Vanessa Miller. Yes. And so that was, it was just, it was just fun to, um, and props to Picky Gannon for letting us, uh, for gifting us that space to, to try it out. I think, um, if I had more time in Seattle, that would be, I would love to do more live episodes in bigger venues. Uh, and then I did like an honorable, so those were sort of my top five. And then I did an honorable mention to Kate, Kate Yeager with her episode where she, uh, improvised a theme song to the theatrical <laughs> podcast. So that, I mean, all, I mean, and that's just saying like every, there's something special about every episode. Cause I think, I think you've realized this as well that you get to, I don't know, you just get to, how often is it that we have an uninterrupted conversation with another theater artist for 45 minutes to an hour. We don't, we don't get that opportunity that much. We're so, we're so like, we're like plugged into our phones and, yeah. but it's just sort of like two people and a microphone and you get to, you feel a closeness to a human being after that, that you just don't get doing anything else. Yeah. We, you kind of um, mentioned that or it came up, you moderated the, the Twitter conversation for HowlRound. Oh, yes, podcasts and performance. Yeah. We'll put a link in the episode description. Yeah. Um, and that, I was following it a little bit uh, that day on Twitter, and, and that came up, like, what, I can't remember what the original question was from someone about, about, like, connecting with people on, in, in a podcast, but it was, yeah. my response to that was very much, like, it's so amazing because... Yes, as theater artists, we have so much to share with one another and can be so inspirational for one another, but it's it's sometimes really hard to talk about our work with one another because, of, well, for a lot of reasons, I think. But I think this platform allows us to, like, kind of get past those those walls of, like, the awkwardness of talking to someone you've never met before about... Right. This thing that you you both have in common, because you and I are both theater artists and yes. are interviewing other mostly theater artists. Yep. Um, and and for me personally, that can be a really hard thing to like a- allow myself a voice with with other people. It's yeah. It's an awkward thing to be like, oh well, yeah, let's talk about this work that we both have something to say about it. Um, but this platform really allows that to those walls aren't there. It's Yes. And I think, I think it's lovely that there's not a visual component to it. I think that, mm-hmm. I think that allows people to open up in a way that they normally might not, because I think as theater think artists, we're so, point. I think especially as actors, yeah. we're so about like, how does my hair look? Mm-hmm. And like, I want to make sure like 
these headshots have to be perfect. And so I think it allows, um, allows folks to open up more. And I, I mean, I'm a fan of the Nerdist podcast and Chris Hardwick was right because he said after about that 25 minute mark, that's where people really start feeling comfortable. Like about half an hour has gone by, nothing horrible has happened. And he said that in reference to, he did an uh, interview with Keanu Reeves. Uh, is it Reeve? No, it's just Reeve. Keanu, we know what I'm, we know who I'm talking about. Yeah, they're, they're, if Keanu happens to be listening to this, I'm so sorry that I mispronounced your last name. It's <laughs> <laughs> not gonna happen. But he was, he was, uh, it was sort of doing a press junket for, I think it was John Wick, but at most people had half an hour, and so it was just like a 30 minute episode, and Chris, like, Chris was talking about like how he wished that it would have been able to be longer, but I think that is sort of a sweet spot to mm-hmm. it, and I think, uh, I don't know, it's just, there's there's a bit of magic that happens, too. I mean, I know that I said, one of the tweets that, one of the things that I posted on Twitter was that um, I became more connected in the Seattle theater community in one, you know, a year, a year and a half of podcasting than I did in the previous eight years of auditioning, because people then, like, they know you, like, an audition is two minutes, this is you know, 45 minutes of seeing, like, oh, cool, like, you can talk most of the time articulately about theater, and, like, you are invested, and you give a shit, and it's just, it's lovely, and then I think it also made me feel more, like, more of an expert and, like, more worthy of grad school, because I think that we all have, you were sort of alluding to this earlier, but I think we all have imposter syndrome as, like, theater artists, like, who are we even to be having this life where we get to, you know, we have our, we have our day jobs, I mean, and then, like, go to rehearsal for three to four hours after that, and then it's impossible to explain it to people who don't do it, and, um, yeah, and so it, it, it's, it's been, it's been wonderful, and it's been magical, and it's not to say that it's, it's coming to an end, because I know a lot of people are interested, like, what's happening with the podcast? Well, folks, What's happening with the podcast is Alina is going to keep giving you high quality interviews here in the Seattle area, and then you'll hear, hear you'll hear from me down in 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 Boulder, um, and we'll sort of I want to settle in and like enjoy grad school, but I have an inkling that the itch to <laughs> keep talking in this meaningful way to people will will keep will keep going, and I think it was really cool because it was about this time last year that I was interviewing you for the first time and I think I didn't even I didn't even know that I wanted help or like I think it wasn't until and I think it was about halfway through the interview I was like this is someone who could do what I'm doing (laughs) like and I don't think like I just was like I knew like you just know sometimes it's like getting you know it's like Jojo giving Jordan the first impression rose I know yeah bachelorette right (laughs) we all knew we all knew same thing with Kate (laughs) Caitlin and Sean, too. That first impression. And that is where Chris Souls went wrong. He gave Britt that first impression, Rose, and he couldn't get her out of his mind and should have just stuck with it, even though it might not have been the most lasting of relationships. But Well, I've been, I'm reading, I'm reading, um, I think it's Jess, Jessica Klein. It's Amy Schumer's head writer, um, head writer and executive producer, uh, and her memoir, You'll Grow Out of It, I believe is the title of it. I've been reading it and she was saying the true, like the true test of who like 
a human being is is how they respond to watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. <laughs> and seriously, there is this thing. I have I have it. I have it. I'll pull what I'll pull up the quote directly. I hope I'm winning because I definitely have a pretty strong. Jessica, okay, you'll grow out of it. Um what is it? If you want to know how a man really thinks, I truly believe one of the most instructive things you can do is sit and watch The Bachelor with them. And a couple, a couple. I'm gonna just read a couple of my other favorite quotes for that. Put, put simply, every anthropology store feels like the manger in which Zoe Deschanel was born. <laughs> and I think my favorite so far was not responding to the texts of a man who has wronged you is truly one of the sweetest pleasures in life. Sure is. That's fantastic. So I'm, I'm reading that, y'all. You should, you should check it out. Not that we'll have Jesse on the podcast anytime <laughs> soon, but uh, Bachelor and yeah, and talk actually talking about Maya about her character choices in Julius Caesar and how they're inspired by the Bachelor. That is like that can get an honorable mention as yeah, well. Yeah, everyone come see Julius Caesar on Whidbey Island, directed by Corey McDaniel. Uh, if for no other, there are many wonderful reasons to come right. see that show. It's a fantastic, strong show. But Maya Sugarman <laughs> as Artemidorus, I think, uh, is definitely in the top five reasons it's, to see that show. Well, it was memorable. She was so memorable in that show without having any other context. Um, and then knowing that, then then sitting down and talking with her and, and learning more about the character choices that yeah. she made. We've been watching a lot of Bachelorette this summer, so I've watched every it episode, and now I want to. I need sense. to watch uh, Bachelor. I've watched the first episode of Bachelor in Paradise, Me but too, I don't only know the first. Do they have it on Hulu? Is it on Hulu? It should. I mean, we watch it on Hulu. Okay, but we have like Hulu. I have to get caught up. Oh, now you know. Man, so we're not, oh, and I think man. this is good too because because I think there's a misconception with folks that theater is like super highbrow all the time. Dude, we watched The Bachelorette. We not, not only watched The Andrew Bachelorette. Andrew Yabroff hates it because who he does? Super res- Andrew Yabroff. Oh, uh, <laughs> ISF actor this season. Uh, he, which is I think an interesting debate. This conversation about because reality TV really was spawned by the writer strike in Hollywood. Right. Um. You know, however many years ago that was now, a while ago, but. That was, like, really when it took off. So Andrew's point is that he super resents that reality TV has this stronghold now in our culture because it's taking away jobs from actors, which, okay, all right, fair point. But it's also, as Maya will point out about that JoJo saying goodbye to Luke, you can't write that, and you, like, no one can act that. That's just life happening right there. I know, and I all learn something. From I was, it. as I said in in Maya's episode, like I think that, like Shakespeare totally would have fucking dug the Bachelor. I mean, totally. like I feel like the this is what the groundlings like would you know? Yeah, the groundlings would have totally dug. I mean, it's just you put you put people yeah in a pressure cooker and you film all of it. Yeah, it's an interesting social experiment to be able to view. I think it's a great lens into a way humanity functions given certain circumstances. There's like, definitely Shakespearean things that happen. Like you want to, you want to send that person home. Chad do is this. epically Shakespearean. As is Luke. Oh, Luke. Do you think he's going to be the next? I, mean, I, I love do. that we're talking about this. Yeah, do you think I he'll mean, be the next bachelor? This, yeah, he I do. Better be the next bachelor. They totally set it up for him to be the next bachelor. 
I think so. And then Chad was like, I think I deserve love. <laughs> and it was so obvious Chad. that, like, that was not, he was told to say that. What like, did I that do was wrong? a line he was given. Yeah. Oh, my oh for sure. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. And I don't, I don't know if our, 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 our audience members know that you have a new position now. You are now the Associate Artistic Director of Island Shakespeare Festival. So I wanted to give a shout out to that. Thank like, you. Cool. I am the associate of many things in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is great. I need one more, though. I need, Alina, I Alina Hodge is professional associate. Yeah. Professional. I should just. Yeah, I am. Just professional associate. I'm associate for yeah. associate for everything. Yep. Uh, and we also I also want to give out a shout to your husband who does such a fantastic job editing your episodes. So Eric, yeah, he thank makes you me sound great. For being our <laughs> our uh unofficial well no official, like our sound engineer. Yeah. So that's why if you're wondering if you have a good eye for sound you may notice that Olina's episodes sound better than my episodes, <laughs> just because I get, I I am I am just like it's all about the episode. Like this is why Mark Maron doesn't edit his own episodes. He just sits down and talks with a person, then someone else edits it. But uh, it's fun. It I all roll. works. It's all works. It yep. all works. It's a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful pot of wonderfulness. I'm dating your cats too. Cats are Dozer. Yeah. I'm talking about Dozer and he's completely turned away from me. Which seems Dozer. Seems about right. Yep. 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 He is. Well what, do you have any favorite moments from episodes that you want to share? Um, yeah, I mean, I I think I get I get something out of every conversation. Um I had a little stint of interviewing several directors in a row mm. um christopher jewell i interviewed about um lilies which we then went to see, which was a great interview and i really enjoyed talking to him and then we went to see that show and i was blown away but we both it, were yeah it was yeah a we stunning were production it was i i was excited to see it because it was an interesting conversation and was like oh, this would be an interesting show to see but it was it was beautiful um, that wasn't a favorite. I I don't know. That it was an interesting interview though for me. And um, then Desdemona Chang also I interviewed right around the same time. It was like maybe the same week, uh, and a couple others. And it was it's it was really interesting. I'm not a director, but it's something that I look forward to pursuing in the future. You will be. I yes. will be. And I and I'm excited about it. And it's been really fascinating to hear kind of different directors processes and yeah. and where they overlap um so th there was this one week of like a lot of directors <laughs> right for me that I was interviewing and it was fascinating to hear um some similar stories about directing and and from very different humans and theater artists where where they intersect kind of in in storytelling and I think it, I'm fascinated by that kind of collective unconscious, unconsciousness that we share as, as artists and Yeah, we don't, and... we don't really get to d delve into, we, there aren't really a lot of long form interviews with directors. Yeah. I mean, we see actors all the time, yeah. you know, both, both stage actors and film and television, but 
I think it's a real treat to be able to dig in with a director because that process isn't as transparent as, as, or talked about as much as, as the process of actors. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, um, one thing Desdemona said was, uh, she talked a little bit about how the world doesn't get to see that process. The world doesn't get to see what, what goes on behind the scenes to make a play happen. Our audiences come and they enjoy the work that we present, but but so much work happens in a rehearsal room that is never seen. So much incredible moments of of communicating humanity. It's a word I've returned to several times in this <laughs> today. I must be really thinking about humanity this year, but um, <laughs> this season. Uh, but there's so much that happens that we don't get to share. I think it's really cool to have those conversations and and be able to talk about what those what the work is and share with the rest of the world who aren't theater artists but enjoy theater kind of how how we get there and why absolutely yeah yeah so we just talked about stuff and this is the 100th episode and y'all want to tune in next week where when we'll be posting Alina's interview with Ryan Higgins which Sorry I'm, Ryan, we're posting uh, it. It's the congratulations on your Gregory nomination. <laughs> so it's perfect. We'll it is able- perfect. I saw that today and was like, "Great, it's great, what, perfect timing." What was he nominated for? He was nominated for um RNJ. For, yeah, for uh, fight choreography for RNJ. Awesome. So Seattle Immersive's production of Romeo and Juliet. Congratulations, Ryan. I'm excited to hear that interview. Which we talk a lot about, so I think it's very, actually, it was totally planned. It's meant to be. And then um, the week after that, I'm very excited for y'all to listen to my interview with Meme Garcia, who is, she was an absolute delight to sit down and talk with. I'm pretty jealous. I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) It's going to be great. So keep, uh, thank you for listening, and... There'll Please be, keep listening. There'll be many more episodes to come. <laughs> and uh, we're grateful for you for tuning in. And you, dear listeners, make this podcast have the momentum and staying power that it's had um, for the past hundred episodes. So thank you so much. Thank you.